Welcome to the Wild J Podcast. I'm Rebecca Steele, the Wild J Podcast Editor. And I'm Gavin Jackson, a first-year Wild J Editor on the podcast team. Today's episode will take us on a deep dive into the constitutional legacy of the insular cases. Many of the same Supreme Court justices that decided Plessy versus Ferguson, infamous for legitimizing the separate but equal doctrine, also issued a series of lesser-known decisions about the U.S. territories called the insular cases. But unlike Plessy versus Ferguson, these cases were never overturned, and they have had a lasting racist and colonial legacy. The insular cases established the theory of territorial incorporation, whereby territories deemed to be incorporated and therefore on the path to statehood, such as Alaska and Hawaii, are distinguished from those determined to be unincorporated. The court held the Constitution did not apply fully in unincorporated territories like Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. The Yale Law Journal Forum has published a collection of essays exploring the history and legacy of the insular cases. And this episode of the podcast explores the intersection between scholarly criticism and practical realities. We spoke with one of the authors in our collection, Professor Aziz Rana of Cornell Law School, and activist and attorney Selena Romani, former president of the Bar Association of Puerto Rico, to examine the continued vitality of the insular cases today. Aziz Rana is the Richard and Louise Cole Professor of Law at Cornell Law School. His research and teaching center on American constitutional law and political development, with a particular focus on how shifting notions of race, citizenship, and empire have shaped legal and political identity since the founding. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Rana. It's great to be here. Despite the importance of the insular cases to American history and constitutional law, one point that you make in your piece is that many Americans have never heard of them. They are often not even included in constitutional law courses. Could you share some historical background to the insular cases and talk us through the implications of those decisions? Sure. So uh, the cases emerged out of the Spanish-American War um, at the very end of the 19th century. Um, So the war was initially fought over the status of of Cuba between the U.S. and Spain. But it it quickly became um, a broader conflict over really the meaning of the U.S.'s power overseas um, during this period. So what ends up happening by by the end of 1898 is that the U.S. Uh, essentially ends up claiming vast overseas territories. So from Puerto Rico all the way to the Philippines. And the war itself ends up becoming really a referendum on the future of American power in the world. Um, the cases themselves end up focusing on the question of the constitutional status of these new overseas possessions, particularly Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Um, They're called the insular cases because these possessions were islands and they were being overseen initially by the the War Department, the federal government's War Department's Bureau of Insular Affairs. And so these were constitutional cases that emerged uh, with a focus on the the status in particular uh, of these specific islands. And the big question was, whether or not the U.S. federal constitution and all of its various provisions would apply equally to the, the new possessions that were being claimed. So the specific issue at hand in some of the cases, so one of the most famous insular cases that I speak about in, or I write about in the, in the piece is called Downs versus Bidwell. And so this had to do with the fact that Article One of the constitution says that duties import and otherwise, are supposed to be uniform across the U.S., but there were special import duties that were placed on goods coming from Puerto Rico to the continental United States. 
And so the question for the court was whether or not these special import duties are, are constitutional because of the fact that they seem to violate that provision of Article One. But at a kind of deeper level, the, the question before the court was whether or not the U.S. could actually hold territories permanently as colonial dependencies, um, not consistent with the same kinds of practices or treatment that you would give to states within the U.S. In other words, could the U.S. as a constitutional matter be organized just like European empires abroad, where there would be very different legal regimes established for um, particular territories, let's say in Asia and Africa, as opposed to uh, the way that, um, that laws were constructed in the kind of European metropole at home. Thank you, Professor Rana. And as much as the cases were important at the time they came down, they remain very important today, as your piece argues. Could you give us an overview of the argument you make in the essay? Yeah. So I think one of the reasons why scholars um, tend not to discuss the insular cases when they're thinking about American constitutional development as a whole, or the cases don't get taught generally in American law classes, is because they're seen as basically an aberration. So what the court ends up doing is the court says that um, it is constitutional to have special import duties, for example, um, when it comes to um, uh, uh, products that are coming from Puerto Rico to, uh, to the continental United States, and so that the Constitution doesn't necessarily have to follow the flag everywhere. And so it provides a constitutional basis for what amounts to the establishment of colonial dependencies. And the law of the case has ultimately been built around a concurrence writ uh, written by Justice White, where White says that there are certain parts of the of U.S. territory that are thought of as incorporated. In other words, that when they're claimed, they automatically become part of the quote-unquote American family. There are other um, parts of U.S. territory that are unincorporated, which means that the Constitution as a whole need not apply there. They're not automatically thought of as part of um, the American family. They're what he calls very famously, and this is the most famous line from the case, foreign in a domestic sense, foreign to the U.S., but in a domestic sense. Um, now, most scholars tend to treat this development as a product of a kind of a set of choices that were made at this moment in time where there was a, a, a move toward empire, but that Americans quickly realized that this wasn't a good idea and didn't end up pursuing additional um, overseas territories on the model of other European empires. And the thought here is that in a way, um, the cases aren't particularly useful for making sense of the general trajectory of the U.S. as a constitutional project, because for the vast majority of American history, the way that territory was treated was based on the principle that all territory should be on a path to statehood. And since all territory is on a path to statehood, then the U.S. is kind of implicitly anti-imperial. What I argue is that this basic way of reading both the meaning of the cases and also the general, general presumption that a path to statehood means that the U.S. is anti-imperial from the founding just fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the American project, that the U.S., from the earliest days of, of colonization has actually been uh, a sustained experiment in, in empire. And the thing that's interesting about the insular cases is it marks a very specific kind of hinge in the transformation of imperial ideology from what I refer to as settler empire to something that's closer to global primacy. 
And in a way, the Insular Cases tells us something really significant about the kinds of legal changes that were necessary for the U.S. to become the kind of global power that it emerges by the mid-20th century. You introduce the idea that the Insular Cases pave the way for later American attempts to differentiate its form of imperial rule, uh, a sort of an indirect, uh, quote-unquote, benevolent economic form of imperialism from that exercised by European powers like Britain or France. Could you tell us a little bit um, about why you think that this attempt to differentiate its rule took place and if it was a conscious decision by policymakers to pursue a different form of imperialism from that of the European powers? So what I say is that that like the insular cases are, you know, are really interesting because they're, they're, they're at this moment of crisis around the meaning of the national project and how to think about the U.S.'s relationship to the rest of the world and the relationship between internal domestic practices and external power. That, you know, the way that much of American political development had proceeded in the 19th century was through westward territorial expansion where the idea was that in order for insiders to enjoy the benefits of economic independence, political self-rule, you needed to have access to land. And so you have the expropriation of indigenous land and and sort of moving of settlers onto what had been native territory. As part of that, the basic thought was, you know, this claiming of new land is a demographic project. You basically remove native peoples, you settle um, those like European migrants, and when the land has been demographically transformed, you have a moment where you write new state constitutions, and then you apply for statehood. And so all territories in the path to statehood. But notice that that process is still, that's an imperial process of conquest, indigenous, you know, subjectivity. But that's the way that the U.S. had basically developed in the 19th century. And it was tied very closely to a kind of ethic about what it meant to be an American. What it meant to be an American was the kind of person that engages in these projects of settlement and through these projects of settlement enjoys economic independence and political self-rule. The end of the 19th century, what you see is that the frontier is closed. There's no new land for westward settlement. There's heightened forms of industrialization that are creating all sorts of class inequalities domestically. And then you have large numbers of new immigrants from other parts of the world that traditionally were viewed as kind of outside the body politics. So Southern and Eastern Europe, um, Asia with um, Chinese and Japanese migrants. And one of the kind of solutions to what was sort of seen as dissolving kind of social bonds was this idea that, well, the U.S. can perhaps reconstitute its community, can enjoy the benefits of of uh, material prosperity by asserting itself over uh, abroad, overseas. And the first thought was by replicating, just straightforwardly replicating European empires, you know, so claiming new territory, ruling them as colonial dependencies. And in a sense, the insular cases constitutionalized that moment and that thought, which is, you know, the U.S., federal government, in particular Congress, should have all the same powers that any other European empire would have to actually just claim territory, rule them as dependencies, 
extract the wealth that you need, have access to the markets that you'd want so as to ensure domestic here, you know, essentially like European settler economic prosperity. And that's part of what's going on with these protectionism schemes that in a way like last all the way to the present with respect to Puerto Rico. American officials start to say, you know, we're not like the British Empire, the French Empire. We're not in the business of having, you know, massive and permanent colonial possessions. Rather, what we're committed to is the principle of constitutionalism, of uh, market capitalism, and that what we'll do is intercede to establish self, you know, self-regulating economies, self-determining polities, and then we'll step back um, when, you know, when it seems necessary. And that's a theory of kind of benevolent um, oversight in keeping with an account of um, self-government and constitutionalism that becomes really key to how the U.S. justifies its own interventions over the course of the 20th century. So Vietnam and Iraq more recently. So we'd now like to turn to some questions on how we might address the issues you've identified. What do you think the role for modern constitutional scholars and legal academics is in reteaching the imperial legacy of our constitution? And how do you practice this in your own teaching? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. So the, the first thing um, which, you know, scholars have, have actually been pushing for over the last 20 years is just expanding the canon. In other words, of the canon of the kinds of cases that should be covered in, in law school courses um, and including the insular cases, cases like Downs versus Bidwell and others, in, you know, in, in the curriculum. So I think that that's, that's important. It's a, a critical first step. This is something that Sanford Levinson's been discussing. And I should say that there's a, a number of terrific scholars um, of this period and of this material who, who are doing wonderful work that I, you know, I would just highlight. So um, Anna Sue, um, I mentioned Christina De, uh, um, Ponza Kraus, um, Sam Ehrman. Um, so there's, there's an emergent body of work on this. But I also think in a way, if the issue basically is that we tell American constitutional development and stories about the meaning of the Constitution without really locating those debates within the fact that the U.S. over the course of the 20th century becomes this dominant global power with a, an, a massive federal state that has the ability to intervene, has all of this discretionary authority. I think part of this is really shifting the lens of what we focus on when we talk about constitutional law. In many ways, the constitutional law field itself emerges in the 40s and 50s and is a product, even if not directly, a product, though, of um, the American century and of Cold War thinking and of faith in you know, the, the necessity and goodness of the state as it was, as it was emerging. And, you know, I'd say that there's a kind of responsibility now to move beyond just the kind of the old questions about grand constitutional theory or what what's being judicially managed in the courts to thinking really seriously about the overarching structure, purpose, project of American constitutionalism, how it's generated a, a very specific set of institutional practices, what it means for folks that find themselves on the margins, both domestically and abroad. Thank you again for, for joining us today, Professor Ronan, for contributing to what really has been an engaging and, and thought-provoking conversation. For listeners interested in learning more, we recommend taking a look at Professor Rana's Yale Law Journal Forum essay entitled, How We Study the Constitution, 
Rethinking the Insular Cases and Modern American Empire, published in a collection of foreign pieces on the insular cases. Selina Romani Siaka has been a professor at Inter-American University in Puerto Rico and the City University of New York Law School, where she co-founded the first legal clinic in the U.S. on women's international human rights, advancing many pioneering international projects. While at CUNY Law School, she became the first Puerto Rican full professor in U.S. law schools. She has also been a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and American University Law Schools, held the Gladstein Chair at the University of Connecticut, and the Haywood Burns Chair at CUNY. Her writings on international human rights, critical race, ethnicity, feminism, labor, and employment rights have been amply recognized. She is currently the founder and co-president of the Legal Coalition for Puerto Rico, the first organization managing a network of pro bono attorneys for nonprofit organizations in Puerto Rico. Her litigation in federal and state courts in Puerto Rico has set noted precedents. In 2006, she became the second woman to preside over the Bar Association of Puerto Rico, founded in 1840 and among the oldest bar associations in the world. Ms. Romani, thank you so much for joining us today. As an attorney practicing in, in Puerto Rico, and as we mentioned, the former president of the Bar Association of Puerto Rico, which you note has historically been an advocate of decolonization, can you speak to the practical effects the insular cases have in Puerto Rico today? Uh, absolutely. I think that the most, the key impact, the key practical effect that the insular cases uh, have in Puerto Rico is really maintaining the legitimacy, uh, the legitimacy uh, of a colonial situation. Uh, it's really giving the judicial imprint, uh, justifying the relationship that exists between Puerto Rico and the U.S. Uh, the political routes have uh, been evolving throughout the 20th century and this century, but that remnant of legitimacy that is given by the judicial uh, branch is something that it's uh, important to remove because otherwise the inclusive the, the including the, the different paths that we might explore to really uh, conclude and eradicate that particular relationship which is like you know the relationship that holds the oldest colony in the world as was called by a former Supreme Court justice of uh, of Puerto Rico is really uh disentangling all these like you know judicial doctrines that support uh, that uh, relationship that contravenes basic principles of self-determination internationally and contravenes um, the dignity of the people and contravenes the republican principles of a constitutional framework that is supposed to be ruling in the US is a is the the background of the empire still alive and well. And even though they might shelf them for a while or place them in a basement, uh, the Supreme Court is free to open that door and decide when and under what circumstances they come back and they could come back with a vengeance. So Professor Rana in his piece argues that many of the folks living on the mainland United States fail to recognize 
that U.S. history really is a history of imperial settler colonialism and that it's impossible to disentangle our narrative from that narrative. Is, is that an oversight that anyone living or working in Puerto Rico could make, that the U.S. is not an imperial settler colonial society? Well, I think that that question, the way to answer it, is, um, has different routes. One is, what has the colonial experience uh, brought about in terms of the cultural realities in Puerto Rico, in terms of the educational realities, the economic realities, and how that relationship has influenced the way Puerto Ricans see uh, uh, the U.S.-Puerto Rico uh, relation. I think that I remember uh, many writings on uh, the psychology of oppression and the colonized mentality, uh, which... uh, documents the way that people um, assume and accept at very unconscious and sometimes conscious levels the superiority discourse of the colonizer. And that inferiority uh, and subordinated um, account that is being told over and over again, I think it has uh, left some imprints. Uh, For example, in Puerto Rico, for many years in the 20th century, English was the official language. And we come from a history of Spanish traditions, of Spanish language as the first language. And the history of Puerto Rico was never taught in the schools. It was like, you know, history of Puerto Rico was written actually by an American author. I think, however, that in addition to that, Uh, ingrained sense of inferiority that many people have um, been taught to accept, Uh, there has been also a lot of uh, um, education and a lot of actions that let Puerto Ricans uh, think that without the U.S. they cannot survive, that the economic dependency is so humongous that... uh, U.S. is the only, this relationship, no matter how defective it is, is the only relationship that we can aspire to have. And so it's a combination of how we uh, internalize uh, what this superiority, inferiority uh, discourse is about, combined with the fact that throughout the past century and this century, we we have been told that uh, alone, and without the help of the benefactor, we cannot survive. And there's a lot of discussions about that. And for example, recently we had the um, imposition of a fiscal oversight board uh, by Congress to address the fiscal economic crisis that we had. And this is essentially a fiscal board appointed by Congress, appointed, I mean, by the president with some recommendations by Congress, and that has complete authority over all the fiscal matters in Puerto Rico. They can even override whatever the local legislature uh, uh, states or provides, even the governor, the executive power. So that's another example of how we are in this economic crisis and who comes to the rescue 
the president and uh, Congress comes to the rescue. But that's also aided by the legitimation of the insular cases. We definitely um, have no road to challenge the sources of authority. Uh, and not having a road to challenge the sources of authority is in part uh, the result of the judicial interpretation of the relationship, the territorial relationship with Puerto Rico as an unincorporated territory. It's a process that slowly but surely, I think, infiltrates uh, the psyche of the Puerto Ricans. And in that sense, I would say that some people are not as clear as others as to the real relationship that exists between the U.S. and, and Puerto Rico. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, you sort of allude to this shifting of positions in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of the Financial Oversight Board, in the aftermath, I think, of, of Hurricane Maria. Can you sort of give us a brief background on what the major political positions today in Puerto Rico are with regard to Puerto Rican sovereignty and the future of the Puerto Rican relationship with the United States? The options are statehood full statehood. Uh, there's a party that always have been advocating for uh, the admission uh, to the U.S. statehood family. And that entails, was, uh, you guys know, uh, what happens when you're a state. I don't know if that will happen. Uh, precisely for many of the considerations that we have been discussing, that there's a, a lot of ignorance and a and a lot of prejudices still alive, a lot of stereotypes still alive. And now that we have all these issues of, of, uh, of race uh, being so clearly exposed, because it's not that they're new, we have been, you know, familiarized with them a long time ago. But the exposure has also, like, you know, unveiled the, the different levels of stereotypes and prejudices that exist in the U.S. And so... Statehood with giving us more representation than other states and all of that would be a very difficult political discussion, but that's one. The second one is full independence. Full independence, breaking the ties and being recognized as an independent country, a full sovereign independent country. The third one is like a not a complete independence, like a Partial independence, I would call it, that recognizes sovereignty with a compact or with a treaty of association with the U.S. It's called usually in Spanish, República Asociada, Associate Republic. So, and, and that one is being advanced more forcefully as of, I would say, as of the last, you know, 10, 15 years as a more um, possible, a possible route. The three of them, the three of them, and I think I should really underscore this, and most of us who believe that self-determination is something that has to take place outside of the territorial clause, believe that there's a need for a constitutional convention, like a constitutional assembly 
of representatives of parties, representatives of the civil society, in which they begin to formulate uh, a solution for uh, attaining sovereignty, new solutions, and that they would be presented to Congress uh, outside of the territorial clause, and Congress decides, and if they decide no, then we come back to the Constitutional Convention, and a process of negotiation unleashes what outside of the territorial clause. Recently, uh, Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez, uh, or, and I think Rihalva also, uh, presented another uh, piece of legislation trying to push for a constitutional convention, moving away from this formula of plebiscites in an attempt to give uh, the will of the Puerto Rican people a solution that is not tied to the final word uh, or domestic law in terms of territorial governance. Ms. Romani, when it comes to an option like statehood or a treaty of association, as you've told us today, and as activists like yourself have long argued, the current system of U.S. Go governance of Puerto Rico as a colonial possession violates the fundamental human right to sovereignty and self-determination. Increased focus at the same time is being paid to arguments by black and brown folks in the United States mainland that the United States is inherently racist for other reasons. Um, meanwhile, the court actively refuses to even consider overruling the insular cases. So when it comes to an option like statehood or a treaty of association, as you described, how do you think about the value in fighting to become an equal member of this national community that so many are decrying as corrupt? And that's a very good question, because what we when we're talking about either a, a free association or statehood, we're talking first about eliminating the issue of colonialism, uh, about really uh, accessing sovereignty uh, as every other nation has. I, even I always remember Hannah Arendt who said that the loss of a polity expels us from our humanity. You know, that the, the deprivation of a place in the world that you can really, you know, be uh, a give opinions and, and make significant actions. That's like, you know, basic. So that part is very important. That, that deals with that first part. The fact that the U.S. is, what you say, inherently racist and has had this history and has recently been unveiled uh, more and more as uh, one that... Uh, the journey is pretty much unfinished. The journey of equality is pretty much unfinished. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that people like us, Latinos, for example, uh, cannot be part of um, the radical change and cannot be part of an exercise in really in solidarity, in teaching each other uh, what needs to be taught uh, uh, what lessons can we learn from each other? What commonalities, what differences we have? You know, for example, when I lived in the U.S., I remember I was um, in the beginnings of, of the formation of critical race theory, in the beginnings of the, of the discussions about race, and I always raised my hand and said, that's very much a black and white discussion. There's a lot of other issues here that need to be addressed, like colonialism, like uh, 
monolingual governmentality, the issue of racializing someone by because of her language, the issue of intersections of you know of race and gender, and so all of these experiences. And remember that we have sixty six percent, I think of Puerto Ricans live in the U.S. And 70% of those Puerto Ricans, uh, the, the children of those Puerto Ricans are born in the U.S. So the, the, the panorama has changed and, and the diaspora is in constant connection with Puerto Rico. And so those experiences from here and from there uh, are part of, I think, a, a work in progress that needs to happen in the U.S. So I think that instead of rejecting a, a, the, the U.S. polity as a possible source of uh, a, achieving sovereignty and eradicating the colonial situation, we should see it also as an opportunity to influence, you know, the new agendas on equality uh, and the new agendas uh, that describe the issue of uh, racial superiority and uh, stereotypes in simply U.S. history uh, in U.S. history, in a U.S. history mode. In, and, and I think it's important to expand that. And, and, it, and that's where the international also dimension comes in. We have also, you know, this is not the, the only territory that has suffered colonialism. We have a lot of history of colonialism throughout the world. And we have a lot of these people that are now migrants in the U.S. as well. So we have to get together in the U.S. and explore commonalities, differences, political agendas. And I see it as actually as a unique opportunity. I always saw it as a unique opportunity when I taught in the U.S., uh, Latinos, people from different countries that were colonized, and obviously African-Americans, including my African-Americans, colleagues, professors that were fighting the most incredible struggles for attaining tenure because their articles were not scholarly enough. So the, the inequality spread all along. So I think instead of rejecting it, Becca, I see it more as a possibility of uh, joining, I think, the new face of the U.S., I think that's a really helpful way of thinking what we have to look ahead to. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ms. Romani. You shed so much light onto the lasting impact of the insular cases. And this has been a fascinating discussion. So we really appreciate you sharing your insight and your perspective on this issue. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thanks to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful folks at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.